I'm willing to bet that you have heard it before, though I'm willing to grant to you that you probably never said it yourself. If only. If only we had righteous leaders. If only we had just judges. If only we had a good and godly king. As I said, I'm sure you've never thought such a thing. I'm sure that hasn't recently crossed your mind or been on your lips in conversations with friends or neighbors, coworkers, with your spouse, none of those people. But can you believe that it is almost September? Next week will be Labor Day weekend. And that means that in just two months, two months from now, your voice via your vote gets to be heard here in the US. It's at times just like this that we might find ourselves thinking that exact sort of thing. If only, if only there were a representative that stood up for truth and justice and goodness. 3,000 years ago, that's exactly what many people in the city of Jerusalem were saying. The king at that time, 3,000 years ago, had effectively abdicated his responsibility. In some respects, you could have accused him of being an empty robe. He was checked out. He was completely out of step with God's law. He was immoral sexually. He had dishonored by his immorality and his other actions. He had dishonored his father and his mother. He had blood on his hands through murder. He had committed adultery. He was a thief. He was a liar. He was covetous. And if you're keeping track of all of those things, he had broken commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 4 or 5, and you read through the Ten Commandments, you will see that that's commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And that wasn't even the full extent of the troubles that this king had, or the things that were on his rap sheet, if you will. His household was in complete and total disarray. His kids were completely jacked up. And the word going around Jerusalem 3,000 years ago in the midst of that situation was certainly, if only, if only we had righteous leadership, if only we had just judges, if only we had a godly king. And I'm sure, like I said, that you've never thought such a thing. As you look at the leadership in our local community, in our state government, whichever state you might find yourself in, I'm in the state of California, or if you look at the federal government, if you're in the United States, or wherever you might be, I'm sure you've never thought, if only, if only we had better leaders. But before we deal with the predicament, <clears throat> pardon me, of Israel 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem, or we even address the things that are happening in our day that you might be thinking about right now, we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. That's right, we're going back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17 specifically is where we're going to be today. All of these issues and problems that Israel faced while they lived out their days in the promised land are connected to the book of Deuteronomy. And that's why we are going through this book. Deuteronomy, I think, as I've shared many times over the last several years, is 
an essential link that connects the Old Testament narrative from the history books. So when I say history books in the Old Testament, I'm talking about Joshua and Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. So the history books, the poetry books. So when you get into Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, which make up a very large section of the Old Testament books. All of those books in the Old Testament after the Pentateuch, history, poetry, prophecy, all of it links back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an essential link to it. It is a bedrock, if you will, upon which all of the stories of Israel's history are constructed and built. And Deuteronomy is, I hope to show in some sense today, a link that runs all the way through to our day as well in 2022. And so Deuteronomy 17 is where we are at. We left off back in April through the summer, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. We finished that last week. We're coming back to Deuteronomy because back in April, on Palm Sunday, in fact, I taught out of Deuteronomy chapter 16. And so we were done with that. And now we're moving into chapter 17 to pick up our story. But before we do, there's a bit of a recap that's necessary because we haven't been in this book for several months. So again, Deuteronomy is Moses's last great sermon unto the children of Israel, whom he's been leading, before he dies and before they came into the promised land. Moses, the same Moses who was rescued from an evil Egyptian king's decree of death when he was first born. At the time that Moses was born, as the child of parents who were slaves in Egypt, the king or pharaoh in Egypt had given a decree that every male child that would be born was to be thrown into the Nile River and killed. And Moses's mom, she hid him for a time and he was rescued from this decree of death. And this is the same Moses who after that, in the way that his mother rescued him or saved him, he ends up growing up in the same evil Egyptian king's household as an adopted son. It's an amazing story. This is the same Moses who through the first four decades of his life, he was trained in all of the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. Uh, the great world empire of that day. It is the same Moses who at about 40 years old seemingly flushed his position and his power down, down the Nile, if you will, when he was exiled from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian soldier. This is the same Moses who then spent the next 40 years of his life shepherding stinky, dirty sheep out in kind of an unknown desert. Uh, he went from a palace in Egypt to kind of wandering in the wilderness, shepherding dirty sheep, which is kind of interesting because Egyptians hated shepherds. So you kind of see some irony in this whole thing. And then God called Moses. And after that 40 years of being a shepherd there in the wilderness, he says, now you're ready. Now I need you to go down to Egypt, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. So this is that Moses that is giving this message in Deuteronomy. And at the time of Deuteronomy, Moses is now 120 years old. He spent the first 40 years of his life preparing to be great in Egypt, trained in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. He spent the next 40 years of his life being humbled in the desert as a shepherd so that he could spend the last 40 years of his life, as the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says, suffering affliction with the people of God as he wandered in the wilderness. A pretty amazing life. And after all of that, he 
and the people that he helped deliver and has now led for 40 years, they are on the border of blessing. They're on the border of the promised land. But unlike all of the people that he's speaking to, Moses is unable to enter into the land. So Moses is preparing the people of Israel for the earthly inheritance that he was not going to experience. And why is this book, the book of Deuteronomy, and the message of this book so important? Well, for the last 40 years of Israel's history, leading up to this book, Moses has been Israel's direct link to God. In one sense, you could say he was as good as God for the people. When they were in want for food, which you read through the book of Numbers and you see their journeys through the wilderness, there were a number of times where they were in want for food in Exodus and Numbers. So when they were in want for food, who did they go to? They called out to Moses. When they were thirsty and didn't have enough water, who did they complain to? They called out to Moses. When they had an issue or a problem, Moses was their man. When there was an argument, when there was a disagreement, when there was a theft or there was a broken vow or there was immorality or there was deceit, Moses was the arbiter of it all. For four decades, he's the guy that they would go to. But now the children of Israel are going to go into the promised land and Moses is not going with them. So what would be the obvious need? If you were among the children of Israel and for the last 40 years, through your entire life, because the, the generation that was kind of Moses' generation, whom he led out of Egypt into the wilderness to go to the promised land, all of those people are gone. So this generation of people, all they have known was Moses' leadership. When we got a problem, we go to Moses. When we're hungry, we go to Moses. When there's serpents biting and killing us, we go to Moses. There's always Moses that we can go to when there's some sort of issue. So you're among that group of people. There's the promised land. You know Moses is not going with you. What's going through your mind? I would assume what would be going through my mind is we're going to need a leader. We, we have the law. The great lawgiver, Moses, he made sure that we have the law. But we are going to need a judge. We need someone righteous to make sure that there's justice. If only we had another Moses. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 17 is actually all about. The mindset of the people as they're getting ready to come into the promised land. It's kind of like a what if scenario. What if we get into the promised land and someone does something wrong, does something unrighteous? Who is going to judge rightly? In the past, we would just go to Moses. We'd say, Moses, we got this problem. This guy broke this commandment or he did this thing or he broke this vow. What are we supposed to do? And Moses would tell them what they were supposed to do. These were questions that the people that Moses is speaking to, that generation had never had to concern themselves with. None of the people standing before Moses had ever been worried about how to deal with some sort of legitimate problem or issue according to God's law because Moses, Moses was their guy. But now Moses is reminding them of God's law. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's him preaching or rehearsing to them the law of God one final time before they go into the promised land. And the question has to come to their minds as they're hearing Moses talk about the law. But what if when Moses is gone, someone breaks God's command and they, for instance, they offer an unrighteous sacrifice. What do we do? And an unrighteous sacrifice is actually a, a serious infraction. It's one of the original problems all the way back on page four of the Bible in Genesis chapter four. That was one of the original issues that came up, offering a sacrifice that's not acceptable to God. So what do you do? If you are in the promised land and you, don't, you no longer have Moses, how do you deal with this 
issue? Well, again, Deuteronomy chapter 17 is where we get some answers to this. Verse 1, it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. An unrighteous sacrifice, a sacrifice that has a blemish or defect. Moses says here, that's an abomination to the Lord your God. What do you do if an abomination is committed in your midst? And that's a, that's a word we don't use very often, abomination, but that is a heavy word. When there is a clearly unrighteous, wicked sin committed in your presence, how do you respond? In the past, what would they do? They'd just go to Moses. Moses would deal with it. And when he was alive, he would just take care of it. They didn't have to concern themselves with these issues. They didn't have to think about it. But what do you do when Moses is gone? What do you do when you come into the promised land? When you are not one people in one place with one leader, but now you are many tribes dispersed throughout many places, scattered throughout the land. How do you deal with these issues at that point? But there's obviously more than just the concern over righteous sacrifices. That's not the only issue. He just uses that as, as an example in chapter 17, verse 1. But look at chapter 17, verse 2. If there is found among you within your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, so not just offering an unrighteous sac sacrifice, but they've been wicked, in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods, so now this is idolatry, and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told to you, and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently, look into this. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination, there's that word again, has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses, note this, verse 7, the hands of the witnesses shall be first against that person to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people are going to be involved in this. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Can, can we just say that's, that's heavy? That's pretty rough. It, it would be way easier when Moses was around to deal with issues because you kind of didn't have to be involved with it. You just go to Moses and say, hey, this person committed an evil thing, a wicked thing. They committed an abomination and Moses would take care of it. But now he says, when you're in the promised land and there has been an abomination that has been enacted in your presence, you're going to look into it. You're going to inquire about it. And if there are two or three witnesses who all say, yeah, that's exactly what took place. We, we saw so-and-so do such-and-such -such on X date in that place, and we have the evidence, we have the testimony. There's three of us, two of us who have seen it. What's going to happen? Well, those witnesses, those two or three, are going to be the ones to first take up the stone, to put that abomination from your midst. Like I said, that is heavy. If someone were to do some wicked or abominable thing, now, let me just kind of pause there for a quick moment and acknowledge the kind of anachronistic nature of this. To 21st century ears, our ears, hearing this or us reading this, this sounds archaic. This sounds harsh. This sounds maybe even to you crazy. But let me tell you that for the world of the ancient Near East, where these words were spoken 3,400 years ago, this actually was a revolutionary reform. There are a number of different law codes 
from the ancient Near East that you can look at. Many of you may have heard of the Code of Hammurabi. Besides the Bible, that's one of the most well-known law codes from about this same period, a little bit before this period. But that wasn't the only law code. The Hittites, the Canaanites, various groups, they had various law codes that they adhered to. And Israel's law code here in the book of Deuteronomy, this is a revolutionary reform. It's a revolutionary reform in that it levels the playing field and it called all people to what is really a, a rudimentary form of self-governance that had not existed prior to this point. That is the conclusion of a writer from the middle of the 1800s by the name of Dr. Eric Wines. He was a, a Congregationalist minister. He was a professor. He was a university president. He was a prison reformer in the 1800s. And he wrote a huge book, almost 700 page book on the commentaries. It's the commentaries on the law of ancient Israel or the ancient Hebrews written in about early 1850s. And it is a treatise on this exact subject. And his conclusion, Wine's conclusion, was that the Mosaic Law Code, Book of Deuteronomy, was the earliest form of what he refers to as a Republican form of self-governance in all of history. When it is said that we live in a Judeo-Christian culture here in the West or in the United States in 2022, it goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And what we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a nascent form of self-governance, one of the earliest forms of self-governance in human history. And Deuteronomy makes very, very clear the children of Israel were individually responsible to serve and follow God as their king. Let me say that again because that's really, really important, especially that word individually. The children of Israel were individually responsible to serve and follow God as their king king. And that is a lot of responsibility if you think about it. God is sovereign. That is what we see in the scriptures, Old Testament and news. He is the sovereign, but you are responsible to follow his ways. And as came up in our pastor's meeting this last week, as we were talking about this text, there is no enforcing officer. There is no police force. There was no police force to govern this sort of stuff. So what we have here in the opening words of Deuteronomy chapter 17 is that you are going to be one who you have to follow God faithfully. And if you see others who are not following God's faith, God faithfully, then either you're going to come and exhort and encourage and challenge them to do so. But if they continue to not do it, then it's on you to take that before leaders within the city at the city gates and to deal with it. Now, you may say, wait a minute. What if there is an abomination, some wicked issue that is being investigated? I'm looking into this and it's a big deal. How do you determine how to deal with it? How do you settle a dispute? How do you decide on the outcome or the judgment? What are you supposed to do? What process are you going to go through to deal with this issue if there is an issue in your midst? Well, look at what he says. He goes on Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning there at verse 8. If a matter arises, which is too hard for you to judge. There it is right there. Here's that question that comes up. If a matter arises, which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, so where the tabernacle is going to be, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge, there in those days and inquire of them and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. So you're not going to come up with a judgment on your own. They are going to pronounce to you the sentence of judgment. 
Verse 10, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in the place, in that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence they pronounce upon you. So if there is a, a problem, a big issue, that is something too hard for you to deal with, too big for you, then you are to go to those who are the mediators between God and his people. That's what the priests and the Levites were. The job of a priest was to go to God on behalf of the people and to go to pe the people or come to the people on behalf of God. The priests and the Levites would open the law. They'd open Deuteronomy, they'd open Exodus, Leviticus. They would open the law pertaining to whatever issue was being brought before them, whatever controversy it was, and they would read the law, they would interpret the law, and they would give understanding as to how you would deal with this thing. And then there would be a judge, a leader, who, with the priests and the Levites, would determine a sentence. So imagine the scenario, if you will. You are in whatever territory of the promised land that has been given to the tribe that you are a part of. You're a, tri you're a part of the tribe of Dan, all the way up in the north or you're a part of the tribe of Benjamin, really close to Jerusalem. And there you are in your city, Hebron, or whatever it may be, and there is some abomination that has been enacted. Someone has committed adultery. Someone has committed murder, whatever it may be. You are now responsible with you as a witness and other witnesses who saw it are to take it to the city gates. That's where the judges of your tribe and of your city would be at the city gates. And maybe they go, gosh, we don't really know how to deal with this issue. This is something we haven't dealt with before, maybe. So we're going to take it all the way up, if you will, to the Supreme Court. We're going to take it to the priests and the Levites, and they're going to hear this, and they're going to look at the law. What does the law say about this? They're going to interpret the law. They're going to give understanding to it, and the judge is going to determine what the sentence ought to be. But here's the kicker. Notice what Moses says in this passage. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you. You shall be careful to do according to what they order you, according to the sentence that they give from the law. Whatever they instruct you to do according to that judgment which they tell you, that's what you have to do, and do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. And I think that's the point at which you start to go, man, if only we had someone else who could deal with this for us. Because that's heavy. It was one thing to have a police force, an enforcing law enforcer, that would take care of these issues. But what about when it's put back on you? That's pretty sobering, I think. For the children of Israel, God was their sovereign. And they were individually responsible to perform his statutes and his judgments. That's what the book of Deuteronomy makes so clear. That's what we see here in this passage. God is your sovereign. He is your king, Israel. But you are individually responsible to perform his statutes and his judgments. And you might find yourself saying, well, wait, I, I don't want to have to be the one to take up a stone in my hand. But the hands of the witnesses, they're going to be the first against this person to put them to death. I'm thinking of a passage from the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, where Jesus says, you without sin, the same sin, are to cast the first stone. So like I said, this introduces, I would think, a bit of sobriety. There's no mob rule here. It comes down to you. You're the first one. You're the witness. You're the one who brought this to the judges. And you've got other witnesses for you. You've got to be the one to now be involved in taking care of this sin, of dealing with this through a capital punishment 
It's not relegated to some other person who does it behind closed doors and no one gets to see it. You're involved in this. That is sobering. You may say, well, I don't want to do that. I, I, don't, I don't want to listen to the priests, the Levites, the judges. That's not what I was hoping for. I was hoping they would take care of this. But no, they've, they've said, yeah, you're right. This is a sin. And you got a couple witnesses here who said, yeah, we saw them do this. It needs to be taken care of. Now it's on you guys to take care of it. You say, well, I, I just, I don't want to do that. Well, be careful if you say, I don't want to be involved in this governance thing. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at what we read in verse 12. There we go on. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. I'm not sure if it gets any more weighty than that. If you refuse to do as the law commands and as the priest and the judge has determined, it's on you. You shall die. That is considered a presumptuous sin, an abomination. If you are a witness of someone doing something abominable, wicked, and you bring it to the priests in ancient Israel, I'm not talking about today, but you bring it to the priests in ancient Israel, and they say, yep, that's sin, that deserves a punishment, and the judge says this person's to be put to death, but now you as the witness and with the other two witnesses, now you guys are the first to take up the stone and put that person to death. You say, I ain't doing that. Somebody else needs to take it. If you refuse, then now the punishment falls back on you. That is heavy, and that is hard, and self-governance, according to divine or what you might even call natural law, self-governance is not self-evident, and it is not easy. Now, we say in our nation, in our founding charter, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We believe, and Israel, 3,400 years ago or 3,000 years ago, they believed that we are created equal by our creator, by our God. And as his equal creation, we have a right to life. We have a right to be free and, and have liberty. We have a, a, a right to pursue happiness, all of us, each of us. But two things to think about. In our founding charter and going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, chapter 17, where we're at today, that idea of self-governance is actually not self-evident and it's actually not easy. This requires a submission to a codified, objective, and agreed upon set of values and virtues and statutes and ordinances. It, it requires an objective law that you all agree to surrender to, to be under. This is what the children of Israel did as they're organizing their nation 3,400 years ago. This is what we did almost 250 years ago when we organized our nation, that we are organized under this principle, this sort of law. So it requires that there be an objective standard, but it also requires that each of us govern ourselves according to the statutes and judgments. We are each individually responsible to walk it out and to work it out. Again, let me just say again, this is heavy. This is hard. It is not easy. It does not happen by default. Autonomy, self-governance is not automatic, which is why humans almost invariably default to monarchical, monarchical rule. This is our tendency. That's our inclination, which is why we have the very next thing that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. 
when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren whom you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not of your brethren. Now, I find the logic of this 3,400-year-old text to be astounding. Moses says to the people, Israel, you are Israel, a name which means governed of God. That's the name by which you are called. You are governed by God. When you come into the promised land, which your God, your sovereign king, which he is giving to you, he's giving to you as an inheritance. When you are there, you are to be directed and ruled, not by an earthly authority, but by a covenantal law with God as your king. You're going to have to govern yourselves without his day-to-day -day oversight and direction according to the law that he's already given to you. And when the law is broken, you're going to have to handle the judgments of the law according to the statutes of the law. You're going to have to be the one who takes care of this. It is on you, self-governance. To not see the revolutionary nature of this and the revelatory nature of this is bewildering to me. This did not arise out of nothing. This concept was revealed by God this idea of self-governance. But again, this is not easy. God sets the bar super high, as God often does. And in his wisdom, he knew that his people, as ambitious and as optimistic and as idealistic as they were, as they stand before Moses, because many times they say, Moses, we're going to do everything that God has told us to do. God knew that they would fail. He knew that they would default toward monarchy, because that's what we do. And why did God know that we would move towards that, that we would want somebody else to take care of this? Because we're sinners, we're broken. And it is just easier to have someone else handle all of the hard stuff. Now, it's costly. If I am going to relinquish to someone else the, the rule, the authority to kind of deal with, to be the arbiter of issues and problems in society, it's costly. It costs me something, and it costs me giving up freedom. There is a giving up of liberty in that. But in the cost, it seems to, in the cost-benefit analysis, it seems like, man, the benefit outweighs the cost because it's easier. And we tend to opt for the path of least resistance. So individual responsibility is hard. It's easier to submit to an earthly king. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you come into the land, you're going to be ruled and governed by the law. And if you see someone breaking the law, it's on you to deal with it because of self-governance. And yes, there will be someone over you who knows the law and who can articulate what the law says. But at the end of the day, it's on you to deal with it. And our inclination, our tendency when that comes, because those kind of decisions are hard, is to shift that responsibility to someone else because I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to be the one to fix this. And you all have experienced this, whether it's in your household or it's in your workplace. If you're in the workplace and you're just, you know, one of the dozens of people that are a part of the team and you see someone else doing something bad on the team, you sometimes feel more comfortable with the situation kind of turning away and walking away because you're not the manager. You don't have to deal with it. And so it's easier, in a sense, to say, somebody up the pole in management needs to deal with this. And you might tell them, like, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. But I don't want to be the one to deal with it. You don't want to be the one to fire someone. You don't want to be the one who has to terminate somebody. But you're happy there's someone else to do it. And so you might be willing to give up some of your 
rights, if you will, some of your liberties to say you deal with the hard stuff. Individual responsibility is hard. It's easier to submit to an earthly authority, an earthly king. And God knowing this says, okay, here's the requirements when you decide that you don't actually want to have me as your direct ruler and you're going to be subject to me alone. You're, you are going to have to select someone whom God chooses, a person from among you, which means a person who is just like you. They are not, as was the case in other nations around the people during this time, they were not a divine incarnation. The, the kings of Israel were just like the rest of the people. And we see that in the honest report in Kings and Chronicles about how bad the kings were. You know, if you look at other ancient texts from other civilizations and you read about their kings, their kings were on the level of a god especially among the pharaohs and places like Babylon. And these guys, they, they were propped up as being pretty amazing. The propaganda was thick. But you read through Kings and Chronicles, and the Bible is honest about the failures of the kings. They were not incarnations of the divine. They're just human. They are flawed, just like you. So the requirement is, you're going to select someone from among your brethren. You're going to recognize they're on the same footing as you, but you are submitting yourself under their rule. You're, it's going to be costly. You're going to give up some liberty. It's going to cost you taxes, all kinds of different things. But you need to select the right person, he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He goes on. There's some more requirements. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. There we read, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, which they came out of, just came out of 40 years prior, not to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives. So he's not to multiply horses. He's not to multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So in addition to being from the people of Israel, this individual who's going to rule as king, years down the road, Moses says, when you decide you're going to select a king for yourself, you're going to Choose someone from your brethren, and three requirements are going to be on him. These three requirements, or we might even say restrictions upon him, are kind of interesting. He's not to multiply horses, he's not to multiply wives, and he's not to multiply silver and gold for himself. What, what is this all about? It might even seem a little strange at the first glance at this. He is not to multiply horses. This is an issue of trust in God. Seven centuries after Moses gives these commands, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This was given about 3,400 years ago, about 1400 BC. Seven centuries later, the eighth century BC, the prophet Isaiah, he writes this in Isaiah 31 verse one, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Not just Isaiah, 2,700 years ago, but also the psalmist about 3,000 years ago, four centuries after Moses gives this decree in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The psalmist in Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Moses says to the children of Israel, when you go into the promised land, self-governance is going to be hard. This whole thing of being led by the, the Levites, the priests, the judges, that, that's going to be difficult. You're going to find that you don't do it very well. So you're going to, at some point in your future, you're going to say, we want a king. And here's one of the restrictions. Here's one of the requirements for the king. The king is not to multiply horses because he is supposed to recognize that God's king 
must recognize and trust that God is his surety and shield. This is so important. The person that you should choose to surrender to, submit to, and have as a leader in earthly authority, it would be best if that individual, that leader would recognize and trust in God and would look to God as their surety and their shield. They don't trust in external forces to give them power and strength. But not only that, he says this individual is not to multiply wives. Now again, this also gets to an issue of trust because multiplied wives in the ancient Near East were not really just the, the plaything of the king. They weren't there just for the king's pleasure as much as they were there connected to foreign treaties. Ancient kings oftentimes married foreign princesses to form political alliances. One commentator speaking on this says, if the king followed the Lord, he would not need political alliances. So essentially what is being said here is when you have a king who's going to lead you, he should not rely upon the fact that he's got a big army, horses and chariots, nor should he rely upon the fact that he's made alliances with all the people around him. Because a lot of times the way that you would protect yourself in ancient times as a little nation state was that you would get other people around you that are kind of the buffers. They're kind of the, the first to fall if an invading army comes and you would develop alliances with them. And when you would develop alliances with them, one of the ways that you would do that that is there would be an exchanging of princesses. The king of that region would give you one of his daughters to be a wife and she would become a part of your harem. The temptation of the king would be to trust in the size of his armies and to trust in his alliances as represented by the size of his harem, how many wives he had. And God says, no, you are my people. You're not to be like all of the other people around you. And so he says, you're not to multiply horses. You're not to multiply wives. And finally, he says, you're not to multiply as king silver and gold for himself. I love those last words at the end, for himself. This occupation as king or ruler or leader is not to be a get rich quick scheme. But you're not to multiply silver and gold. Why? Because God's king is dependent upon God for his security not the storehouses that he has, not his portfolio. Again, going back to one commentator on this passage, he says, all three prohibitions then were designed to reduce the king to the status of a servant, totally dependent upon his master, the Lord. And, and thinking about that, do you not just say, if only, if only we had that kind of leadership, if only there was a king that we could have that would do that sort of thing. So Moses says, when you come into the land and you find that self-governance is difficult because it's on you, you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to be tempted to say, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. Hands up, like somebody else needs to take care of this. So we need a king like all the other nations around us. And when you choose a king, he needs to be from your brethren. He needs to be someone who does not multiply horses. He does not multiply wives. He does not multiply money because his trust is in the Lord, not in his possessions, not in his powerful forces, not in all of his ability and charisma to develop alliances. Oh, that's the kind of king you're going to need to get. But one final word for the king. He says here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, last verses, look at verse 18. Also it shall be when this king sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. So he needs to record the book of Deuteronomy in his own book, his own scroll from one that is before the priests and the Levites, the same law that is before the priests and the Levites. Why? Because he needs to become an expert in the law because he's going to make, be the one who has the authority to decide about the law. So from the law that the priests and the Levites have, and it shall be with him, the law, and he shall read it all the days of his life, 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. The king's humility before God and those that he was going to lead or serve was paramount. And that would only be assured, the king's humility would only be assured as he would keep closely to God's word. So, how did it work out? How did all this play out? Children of Israel are bordering blessing. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. When we come to the end of Deuteronomy, we're going to see them getting ready to go. Moses is going to be dead. The book of Joshua is going to open with the children of Israel going into the promised land. How did it all work out? Well, eventually... We're going to see when we get to the book of Judges, probably in about 20 years at the rate that we're going through, that their self-governance under the Levites, the priests, and judges didn't really go so well. A number of times in the book of Judges, we're going to see it said, the children of Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord because they did not follow after the word of God. And then about four centuries after the children of Israel have rest in the land, after that adventure and self-governance that falls short in the book of Judges, Israel would come to the last great judge of Israel, Samuel. And they would say to Samuel, look, you're old, you're about to die. Your sons, they do not walk in the way that you walk. So we need you to make a king to judge us like the other nations, exactly like Moses predicted or foresaw that they would in Deuteronomy chapter 17. After their failure at self-governance and judges, they come to Samuel and they say, we need you to give us a king. And we have the list of the kings begin. We have King Saul and King David and King Solomon and going down the line. You can read about all the kings in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And for a lot of Christians... A lot of people who have gone to church for a long time, that name David, King David, kind of makes their face light up a little bit. And maybe you've thought, if only we had a king that was a king after God's own heart, like King David. That's what the Bible says about King David. He was a man after God's own heart. Well, the rest of the story is that after all the fanfare of King David wore off, it was David who multiplied for himself horses and wives and gold. His son Solomon did the same, but David multiplied horses and wives and gold. We don't know for sure the amount of the wives and you know, concubines that he had, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15. And he amassed wives and horses and gold. He dishonored his family when David coveted after another man's wife and he stole that man's wife and he committed adultery and he committed murder to cover it up and he lied about his actions. And then on the other side of all of that, which is recorded in 2 Samuel, his household fell apart. After he had committed adultery and committed murder and lied about it and dishonored his father and mother and all of these different things, his household falls apart. His firstborn son, who would have been expected to be the heir to the throne, his firstborn son named Amnon, raped his half-sister named Tamar. And then his thirdborn son named Absalom, the full brother of Tamar, the one who had been raped by Amnon, murdered Prince Amnon to 
bring justice for his sister. And David, good old King David, did nothing. There was no justice. Second Samuel is one of the most depressing stories of scripture. David had some awesome highs. When we think about David, we think about him as a young boy killing the giant Goliath. We think about him defending his sheep from a lion and a bear. We think about him writing so many wonderful worship songs in the Psalms. We think about him running from Saul for many years and never laying a hand on the Lord's anointed, the king, King Saul before him. We think about all these amazing things that he did and we go, oh man, David, he was a man after God's own heart. He did so many things, high highs, but he had some incredibly deep lows as well. And all of that in 2 Samuel, his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband Uriah, his lie to cover it up, all of these things, they lead up to an insurrection in 2 Samuel chapter 15 where Absalom deposes his father and makes himself king. And then David flees from Jerusalem. And I obviously do not have any time to go through that whole story. We will look at it again at some point in the future. But it is one of those stories that when you read it, you find yourself just thinking, oh man, if only. If only we had a righteous king. And you know, the story of David, when I think about his low lows, and there were a lot of them, uh, I'm reminded of a quote from a great preacher who said, the best of men are men at best. And the fact is, humans will always fall short of righteousness. We think and we hope that we can vote in a better, more just leader. But those leaders will always fail to satisfy the longing that we have within our hearts for a righteous ruler. And I want to suggest to you that that's actually not a bad thing. That might actually be a good thing. Every human king, every human governor, ruler, president, or judge will or should leave us wanting. Because no earthly king will ever satisfy our longing for the coming of the king of kings. Moses knew that. And that's why when we get into chapter 18 next week, we're going to see a prophecy from him in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where we read there that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Notice capital P prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him shall you hear. Recognize that over the next couple of months, the political rhetoric in our nation is going to get thick. You are going to hear all kinds of political rhetoric on podcasts, on the nightly news, stump speeches, all these things from people running for local governments and, you know, school boards and city councils and, you know, to governors of states and to national leaders having to do with the Senate and Congress and all these different things. You're going to hear all kinds of political rhetoric over the next two and a half months. And you are going to be told that this leader over here, that leader is evil. He's the devil, totally unrighteous. And this leader over here, this one is righteous. But just remember that the best of men are men at best. And that goes for women too. Jesus alone is the King of Kings. He alone satisfies our need and desire for a righteous leader to be upon the throne. And only when we surrender and to submit to his rule will we enjoy the blessedness of his kingdom. And this is such an important truth for Christians to learn. You see, the story of Deuteronomy and the story of Israel through Joshua to Malachi that goes back to this book of Deuteronomy as the link, 
These things were written, as Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all these things were written for our understanding and our instruction as we are living in the last days that we're living in it. We need to learn from these things that no one's perfect. The best of men are men at best. And even those individuals who they, they look like the perfect king or ruler or judge or president or whatever it is, that's the person. That's the person after God's own heart. Be careful because they are not God. They are not the king of kings. And the only way that we will see our culture transformed in such a way that brings about righteousness that exalts a nation and lifts a nation up is as the people of God fully surrender themselves to God as their king of kings, as he sits upon the throne and we direct our lives accordingly. That's what brings about revival and reformation in a church, but also in a culture. That's what's needed. So we don't often talk about political sort of things here at the church, and I know for some people that kind of bothers them, but ultimately, I just don't trust in any earthly individual to bring about righteousness. Now, there are some leaders that are better than others that seem to follow the principles of Scripture better than others, and I think you should want to find leaders and support leaders who follow the principles of Scripture. But ultimately, it comes back on you and me because we live in a government, uh, a nation that is governed by the people. And if you see things falling apart in our culture, it's because we, the people, are not living according to the statutes and judgments and principles of God's word. And we've allowed that to happen in our lives. And so Deuteronomy 17 is a call to us to be careful when we think, if only. And remember, it comes back on us to live in accordance with God's word. God, I pray that you would hammer these things home, especially the, because the volume and the craziness of the political rhetoric is going to get thick over the next six, eight, ten weeks. And God, we can be so seduced and drawn into it, tempted to kind of get involved with it, thinking that this person is going to fix it, but there's no person here who's going to fix it. We need you as king of our lives. Lord, would you, by your spirit, teach us to walk in your ways to have your word in our hearts, to meditate upon it day and night, to not turn to the right hand or to the left from it, but to hold strong to your word and to walk in your ways, knowing that it's in that way that we'll be a light to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, and our friends, and perhaps begin to see a transformation as they also, hopefully, begin to align their lives with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.